Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from New Jersey is Jason Meyer. Jason is president of Lead Good Education. And today we're going to do a different topic, which is neurodiversity and neurodivergence in the workplace. Uh, Jason, can you start by defining the issue? What is the meaning of terms like neurodiversity and neurodivergence? And what is the scope of neurodivergence that people will find in their workplace. Sure, and thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me again on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. Um, the, the, here's the key thing about neurodiversity. I mean, it's in a way, it's simple. No two humans are exactly alike, right? And so no two human brains think or function exactly the same way. That, in a nutshell, is neurodiversity. Neurodiversity recognizes that people naturally think and process information Differently, neurodiversity encompasses what is actually a normal and, and healthy evolutionary variation among the human species. Now, when we use the terms like neurodivergence, we're referring to the more distinct or atypical ways in which some people perceive the world or process information or solve problems or communicate with others. You can kind of, I mean, if we really want to oversimplify, think of you know, the way people think and process information on sort of a bell curve and at the center are most typical ways of thinking. Well, neurodivergent could be used to refer to the folks who are away from the center. So neurodivergent people, you know, some have traits that are described with terms like autism, attention deficit or ADHD, dyslexia, executive function issues, sensory integration issues, and, and other conditions. Those can all be sort of lumped together in terminology with the word neurodivergent. But for the workforce, um, you know, first of all, in terms of scope, uh, it's, it's actually quite notable. Uh, there are estimates that 20% or more of the workforce has some neurodivergence. And the thing to remember is these traits may or may not be profound, but they have nothing to do with the worker's intelligence or commitment or ability. So the idea of neurodiversity and neuroinclusion is that regardless of these natural neurological differences, everyone, especially this 20% of the workforce, should be able to participate, contribute, and thrive at work. That's neuroinclusion. And 20% is a significant number. How should yep. we think about communicating to this segment? And is there one way or do we need a lot of different approaches? Yeah. And it, and one of the approaches is, in fact, to use lots of approaches. I mean, and <laughs> we're, not, we're, we're not so much talking about that that old idea in instructional design with, you know, they got words like learning styles or learning preferences. The thing to think about is different ways that people are processing information and different ways that they are integrating or maybe having trouble integrating their senses, sight, vision, hearing. Um, uh, the, the other thing to keep in mind is we think about how to respond to this segment and include this segment is we can't expect neurodivergent individuals to self-identify. A lot of them will be reluctant to. Um, uh, you can't expect it to be obvious. These are non-apparent issues. So it's not realistic to say, hey, all of you who have a reading issue, come into this room and get your alternative training for compliance. Um, number one, you're not going to get everybody who needs it. And number two, that is by its nature exclusive, right? That's not being inclusive. That's sort of a separate but equal. So ultimately, 
Adam, a lot of the solutions in terms of communicating to this segment of the workforce are to implement practices that, that you could say these are critical for some, but good for all. Critical for, for the neurodivergent members of our workforce, but in fact, they make life, life better for everybody. Think about curb cuts, right? They were critical for people who, let's say, are confined to a wheelchair, but they turned out to be pretty good for everybody, including you know, people uh, hauling strollers or, or wheel bags. So how do you start? Uh, there's a set of principles called universal design. Um, those principles are a start in communications, but they're only a start. They're pretty broad principles. They apply even to things like room design. There are a lot of best practices, key mindsets. There are approaches that can be implemented in every element of a compliance program, some of them common sense and, and some even counterintuitive. I think it's sort of general rules. We're looking for communications that are more structured. It's clearer to see how we get from point A to you know point P. Um, uh, you know we're we're doing a better job of outlining. We're reducing the cognitive loads and the demands on working memory for our learners and for our audiences in terms of how we communicate. And yes, we want to rely on multiple media. Uh, you know, if it's if it's text-based, let's have uh, you know visual cues or icons or images. Let's use audio as an alternative form of communicating, so that if people are limited in how they are integrating one sense, they can rely on another. Hmm. Now, I take you have feel that compliance and ethics programs may be failing to engage neurodivergent workers. Can you give us a few examples of what? hasn't been done? Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of the examples of, of issues that compliance and ethics programs may be having, you know, a lot of them arise from what are, you know, actually pretty typical common practices, uh, practices that we generally think of as okay. So I guess let me focus on two examples, maybe, um, uh, policies and let's say key e-learning. So when it comes to policies and procedures, you know, if we're only presenting our key policies one way in long, often text-based documents, uh, you know, a text-based employee handbook or notebooks of SOPs, you know, often these policies are overlapping. They're not coming from one place. They're not even in one place physically. They're not harmonized with each other. Well, if it's that kind of policy framework and I have an attentional issue or a reading issue or a working memory issue, then I'm just not going to engage with that content. I'm not going to remember it. If I have an executive function issue, I'm going to need something clear and organized to get me from you know, step one to step 10. I'm happy to follow a process, but I can't be expected to remember all the hoops I have to jump through. So we want to get rid of those hoops or we have a big compliance risk because we've got a fifth of our workforce that's not engaging with our policies. The e-learning example, you know, let's just take the sort of fundamental anti-retaliation pro-reporting message, right? It's typically at the end of a one or two hour anti-harassment e-learning module. It's often presented almost as an afterthought. Frankly, it's hard enough for most learners to sort of pick up that message deeply. But if, again, if I have an attentional issue, if I have a processing or a working memory issue, then by the time I get an hour into that course, 45 minutes into the course, it's all kind of a blur to me. I stopped engaging and retaining content a long time ago. 
And then if in that module there's nothing to call out particular content as especially important, it all sort of sounds and looks the same. There are no breaks to let my processing catch up. You're putting the exam at the end of the hour, so you're putting a big demand on my working memory. Um, you know, these are all issues for neurodivergent individuals in our workforce. Now you could say, well, you know, the way I get attention is we have this emotion-packed video scenario about harassment. But some individuals with some forms of autism or, or other neurodivergences, you know, that may mean they have a low EQ, that they don't do well processing or perceiving emotions in the point of other, from other people's, uh, you know, the other people's are exhibiting. So that means they're missing the meaning in the video. They're missing the message that this act of harassment, let's say, is bad. And now that video just normalizes the behavior because they're simply seeing an example of harassing behavior without having attached to it the message that this hurts people. Hmm. So, you know, I could go on, um, but, you know, this, this is an area of compliance risk if our typical training is not sinking in. And I guess I, I would offer two additional quick thoughts. I mean, there's, there's so many more examples, but two quick thoughts. One is the area of disabilities law and compliance with the ADA and similar kinds of laws and regulations. Um, neurodivergence may or may not rise to the level of an ADA level disability. But the question is, are our disability compliance processes tuned to pick up non-apparent neurodivergence? Um, the second would be our role as compliance professionals in our organization's recruiting and onboarding. And given the very large numbers of, uh, or the very high level of unemployment among neurodivergent individuals, that would suggest that our companies need to do a better job there as well. You've already hinted and mentioned a few, but I'm, I'm hoping you can go a little bit deeper um, into how can compliance professionals do a better job of, of really welcoming neurodiversity and supporting Neuroinclusion. Yeah, and I'll 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 uh, focus in on your request to do so briefly because there it's, it's workshops of material. But let me let me suggest four sort of good first steps. Um, the first would be like so, you know like the first step in so much of what we do in compliance, assess the risks, assess the situation, um, consider the scope of neurodivergence in your organization. It, it won't be obvious. You could just assume it's a fifth of the workforce. Um, and then consider, you know, maybe an expert audit or assessment of your program to help you find the intersection of those areas of greatest risk to the organization where your neuroinclusion also falls most short. And that will be a place you can direct your attention first. A second step, I would say, would be to really emphasize and think about some key mindsets. Uh, you know, I'm a big proponent, Adam, of always adopting the mindset of the audience thinking about what is salient or what your audience needs to hear and the way they need to hear it. That's doubly important in this realm. Um, the mindset of awareness to make sure you've learned and, and come to understand the traits and perspectives of the more common examples of neurodivergence and realize that you can't expect self-identification. Um, and, and in this respect, we recommend sort of intentional focus workshopping with your team and with leadership to raise that level of knowledge and awareness. I think a third step is to advocate for this dimension of inclusion, um, realizing that there is an ROI, a return of investment in neuroinclusion. 
um, you get better engagement. That means better compliance. You get all the advantages you get with diversity, including adding sort of distinct and often powerful ways of approaching problems or being creative by making sure that neurodivergent individuals are among your whole community. And you may get an untapped source of talent that is really looking to be a loyal employee. So that's strong ROI here. And I think the fourth step is to get help. Uh, there's a lot of brain science out there. There's no reason to expect a compliance professional to know all that brain science and you're not gonna learn all of it. So you need to get help from compliance professionals who follow and understand that science but who also deeply understand the demands and needs and success factors of compliance, of culture building and organizational leadership. So we've talked a lot about the workforce as a whole, but what about within the compliance team? Um, what if you have someone who is neurodivergent? How do you work with them most effectively to get them to be fully functional members of the team? Yeah. And I, I don't want to overgeneralize here. Obviously, Adam, there's a myriad ways of thinking, a myriad of neurodivergence. You know, different strategies are going to work with different people. But I think I think there's places to start. I think number one, you know, watch your assumptions. Um, the person who isn't making eye contact with you when you speak, who might respond to questions haltingly, especially under stress, the person who may be habitually late, don't assume that they're not paying attention or that they don't care. It may be that they are committed, loyal, conscientious, capable, and also neurodivergent. Um, I think a second thing is just to increase your awareness and knowledge of the way uh, neurodivergence may affect your supervision, your mentoring, even discipline and improving. Um, and I think the third, you do what good leaders do with everyone. You empathize and you listen. Again, park your assumptions at the door and think about what does this person need for me? And you can always ask. And that's uh, one of those things that's underappreciated that you can actually have a dialogue around issues and try and find out really what is going on. Just don't make the assumption. Well, Jason, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us today. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Schultow from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we are able to expand your compliance perspective.